Hey, welcome back to Bankrupt Overland. Delj here. As usual, we've got Steve and Jeff. What's up, guys? What's up, man? Hey, what's up? And we have a special guest with you here tonight, Mr. Kurt Williams. How's it going, sir? The infamous. Ooh, thanks for having me, guys. Kurt. <laughs> the infamous. The, the infamous. infamous Kurt. The infamous. Uh, yeah, that's appropriate. I was I was reading uh, a little bit about your background. I think I think uh, X Overland has has the best one here. It, it even goes down to that you're a ham radio operator. So I thought, nerdy, <laughs> I yeah, very nerd alert. Yeah, I am a ham radio. Operator. <laughs> I thought that was that was awesome. Uh, but man, you have uh, you traveled the world. Uh, we are excited to, to hear about some of these stories and and, and to have a, an hour or so just to chat with you. Yeah, you bet. I'm excited to chat. Get to know you guys. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, as usual, we kind of kick this thing off with just talking about what we've done since we've last been on. And it's been a few weeks since we've been on because, mm-hmm. well, I was on a big trip doing doing the things that we try to talk about on here to get everybody excited <laughs> about it. Uh, you were actually to- off-roaded in the dirt? Yeah. I did. I did. I oh, got off road. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, did some things in my luxury luxury off roader and and had some fun. We went out to hit the Ozarks, hit uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and then uh, came back to Can- Colorado Springs and then Cannonballed home. And so, a uh, lot to talk about in there. And, and we'll probably have a an episode where we'll just kind of dive into that whole trip and, and talk through it. So I'm not going to go into too many one. details, but uh, it was a whole lot of fun. Me and my son went out, big trip, good times. And and y'all have to keep on listening to us to get the, the, the nitty gritty details and figure out what I broke and <laughs> what I didn't break and what somebody else might have broke or flipped. It was, it was a good trip. <laughs> All right, we, need, we need some teasers, LJ. We need We need the most fun and the most scary. Just a little the bit most, of a teaser. The most fun and the most scary. So yeah, um, do you want to hear the, the scariest trail or the scariest event? Scariest moment, things. It could be driving. It could be hitting a curb in Starbucks, you know, just. Yeah, no. So, so the scariest <laughs> for me uh, personally was going down Black Bear Pass down the steps. That was that was okay. a very scary uh, butt pucker. Like, you know, you don't you don't mess up because if you mess up, you don't you don't finish that trail on four wheels. So um, that was the scariest. And I would say the most fun is probably going to be New Mexico because it just surprised me. I had no idea how beautiful New Mexico was until I got north of Albuquerque and was just like, why have I not seen this before? (laughs) Where has this been hiding? Uh, So I'll say that's my highlight. And then, and then the scariest part was, was black bear pass and, uh, the scariest event is something different, which you'll have to listen for uh, in, in that episode to, to hear Ooh. about. <laughs> Man, it sounds Stay like we've tuned. done this before. <laughs> well, let's just, let's just say things got a little tipsy. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's what I've been up to. We went out and did that trip, a lot of prep, uh, that trip. And then I've been back home for about a week and a half now and, and just been hammered down trying to catch up and get going back in life. Nice uh what about you guys uh anything fun happening lately uh, cool? for, for me not not fun i don't know last time we talked i'm trying to remember if uh this was an issue uh so i, I tried to get my gm rs radio installed um tried to pull it through the firewall everything got everything hooked back up and then i had some uh, lights on my dash long story short i think my abs ecu has 
shit the bed. So <laughs> that's, uh, womp, that's womp. yeah. So <laughs> I'm getting ABS lights, uh, brake lights. Um, Makes all three of us lights. here. Yeah. All three of us. Kurt, I'm sure you've had one. Many different ones over the years, for sure. <laughs> okay, so we're all we're all so the you're same all boat. familiar. You, you know, you, you understand my uh, my pain right now. So uh, that warning sound, that warning sound, the worst dude. is it's definitely not a fun one. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. So I've been kind of out of commission for a bit, just kind of running uh, little errands around town. That's really all I'm comfortable for until I get it fixed. So, um, but I'm hoping to get that fixed very soon, so I can get back out on on the trails and hit some campsites. So nice. yeah, that's a big, um, that's a big fix. That, that part is, that part is a trip out yeah. West. So yeah, yeah it's uh, <laughs> definitely got to yeah. <laughs> take Who it easy. I feel you there, parts, man. So. <laughs> well, I, I'll be, I'll be excited when you get it, uh, get it back up and running again. We can, we can get too. these tents up. <laughs> Jeff, you've been doing anything fun, man. So yeah, since we talked, um, I did do uh, a day trip to do some wheeling, um, near the cove where you've been LJ oh, yeah. in Tennessee. Um, so went to the cove and I, I went with, um, a, a land cruiser group down here and took mm-hmm. 80 out there. And there's some new trails that were kind of created by the, the people who are making the trails for the park. Um, so we kind of pre-ran, not pre-ran, this isn't the desert. Um, we ran those <laughs> and, um, kind of helped um, establish the trails because I mean, they went in there with a, a tractor and cut down trees and, you know, mm-hmm. this is in this whole area. They're going to be charging people off-road park and stuff out here. So we did that trail and, you know, we, he kind of wanted our opinion on one of these obstacles. That was a big, a big rock shelf and a big off camber with a big tree sticking. So you had to kind of swing wide and go over it. So we did that, had some fun, um, nice. you know, learned a couple of new things and stuff. And during that, I noticed my brakes were squealing a lot. So, um, ended up eating through a set of EBC pads and 11 and a half thousand miles, wow. which seems a little, a little much to me, but I guess I live on a mountain. I drive up and down every day. So it's kind of with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- with the performance, you know, you kind of give a the longevity. So, um, ended up having to replace the, the pads. Luckily on the 80 series, you barely have to take the tires off and you can just slide them in and out. So it was a, you know, a 15 minute job with, you know, two minutes of opening beers while I was doing it. So yeah. um, <laughs> I think it looked, took longer to get the, the beers out of the fridge and the, than the rig than it did to actually do the brakes. Nice. Um, but I did screw up guys. I did screw Uh-oh. up. So I sucked some fluid out of the master cylinder. So when you push it back, you know, it doesn't fall and, you know, squirt all out because I've learned my lesson that way. (laughs) And I left the cap off and then I went to power wash my car, ended up spraying a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit of water in there. And I'm like, Oh God. So I sucked out as much as I could filled it back up. And I had a trip the next night to go to Nashville so I had a two hour drive in the morning and I couldn't, mm-hmm. it was like, it was getting late and like yeah, dinner time, yeah. the wife's yelling, you know, come down. <laughs> so wasn't able to do it. So made it home with the trip. The brakes are a little spongy. So I think I got some moisture in there. Um, mm. So it's time to do the brake lines that I have sitting waiting. So nice. with this, I'm going to do my, my stainless steel lines uh, in the front and then get that all going. So that's kind of what I did. Um, over the last couple, couple of weeks while we were out. Yeah. Now you have to do it. Cause you sit on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, Kurt, have you had anything, any fun projects the last couple of weeks you've been working on, man? We're always something around here, I guess. We've, we've got a shop <laughs> full of fun projects. I've got all my personal Toyota projects always and ongoing and forever and sometimes gives you anxiety. You have so many little things to do, but no, no shortage of them. And then, uh, yeah, a lot of trip planning and did have a, a desert race a couple weeks ago too. So it's been a busy fall. I, I like Now that like COVID's kind of hopefully knock on wood, a little bit of a thing of the past, we're all figuring out how to navigate through it. Mm-hmm. seems like everything's like back to normal and faster than ever. Like everything's happening now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that it's like there was nothing going on for so long, and you got used to that. That almost now at a normal pace feels like too much. You're like, wait, 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 wait. Can we go back to the, the slow <laughs> pace we all lived at? <laughs> I, I totally agree. Like, I I got so much done. I got a I have a an older Land Cruiser, an HJ sixty one that I like hadn't done much to in a lot of years, and it was yeah. nice. Like at nights, not having club activities, and I mean, I'm not saying it was nice. I do miss some of those, and sure. like all our events got canceled. So I was like, ah, Saturday, I'm going to work on a Land Cruiser today. There's nowhere to nice. go. So it, it was <laughs> nice. I did miss everybody and miss everything, but it's nice to get back to it. Yeah, Definitely. it's just Definitely. the difference. The difference getting out of the usual. You know that usual grind. You know when something like that happens, it just changes like the whole thing. You know your whole your whole outlook. Yeah. So there's, there's no shortage of, of areas to start as far as if we were to sit here and just ask you questions and, and, and go through this, this, this history yeah. of yours. It's, it's quite, uh, quite impressive, like just the, the dedication you have to traveling and, and getting out there and doing it. Um, but I know from talking with the crew here, I think the first area that I think would be super cool to talk about and dig into is your uh, Expedition 7. Steve brought this up a, a couple times yeah. uh, as as areas that he was really excited to talk about and kind of learn about what, what those were in there. And so um, f- from that perspective, man, tell us, tell us if you can, tell us about the organization, what they do, and then what, what your involvement, kind of what you've done with them, if that's okay. Yeah, you bet. So Expedition 7 spooled up in like don't hold me to the exact dates, but 2010, 2011 timeframe. And the way it went down is uh, Scott Brady, who's the uh, executive, he's the editor and owner of Overland Journal and the Expedition Portal Forum, uh, heavily involved in that whole realm. Uh, He was in town for the outdoor retailer show and he met up with another mutual friend, the big Land Cruiser guy here locally. His name's Greg Miller. And Greg is subsequently the founder of the Land Cruiser Heritage Museum, too. So oh, definitely cool. a Land Cruiser aficionado. Yeah. And yeah. Just <laughs> conversation, they were talking about uh, Land Cruisers and kind of where they've had cool Land Cruiser experiences. And the little bit of a thought came up like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to take the same Land Cruiser to all seven continents, drive it across all seven continents? <laughs> yeah. It's never been done with a four-wheeled vehicle. So not only did it have like a little wow. bit of a kind of the first time element, so breaking ground, but also you're going to cover seven continents. So you're going to see some amazing terrain along the way. And yeah. that's, that's kind of when I got involved, I, I got invited to do the North America leg and we left here in Utah and went all the way to Cape Spear, which is as far East as wow. you can drive on the North American continent. Now it's up in uh, Canada. Uh, wow. And then subsequently was able to do the Australia portion, the, mm-hmm. Russia, Asia portion, uh, South America, Africa. I guess I did those backwards. Africa, South America. And then we finished by driving from South America back to Utah. And those vehicles wow. are here in the Land Cruiser Museum here in Salt Lake. Oh, no way. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a wow. lot of fun. Very, very fortunate to be uh, involved with that trip. Uh, really neat group of guys. And I'd be happy to 
a lot of, a lot of stories along the way, a lot of neat experiences in many countries. Uh, the, the vehicles came back to Utah and they're parked in the museum. It's kind of sometimes sad to see them. I'm, I'm there at least once a week doing a tour or yeah. a meeting or something. And I love, look, I love seeing them, but I miss those like yeah. days that we were, you know, trekking across the middle of uh, Australia or in Africa on the skeleton coast. Mm-hmm. But we, we did expedition seven had like another little, uh, life. And that was, we did a Greenland trip a couple years ago now, been, been two years ago now, wow. two and a half. So when Expedition 7 went to Antarctica, and I didn't go on that segment because they only took one of the vehicles, and the, the fleet kind of had two troopies, a 79 series four-door truck. That was the one I drove, mm-hmm. and then uh, ended up kind of, it almost, like with each continent, we added a vehicle to the fleet. It was like <laughs> a good way to get yeah. it back to Utah here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but they only took one to South, uh, to Antarctica and that's the, and Greg and Scott went on that trip, but to modify that vehicle, and that's a VDJ 78 troopy to okay. a troop carrier to modify that one, to go to the South pole proper was going to take like some very, very extensive modifications to the, the sheet metal of the vehicle, but all the interior mm-hmm. sleeping system that adventure trailers had built would have to come out. Uh, it, it was going to take like quite substantial modifications. So Greg yeah. opted instead to work with a company called Arctic Trucks. And they're an Iceland a company that builds Hiluxes, 80 mm-hmm. series, 100 series. They do some other you know, some other domestic vehicles too, but they build mm-hmm. these vehicles for polar travel. So uh, he ended up mm-hmm. getting an, it's called an AT44, which is a Hilux. And they subsequently took that one to the South Pole and yeah. even crossed Antarctica and went out to the Ross Ice Shelf and back. So now, if you're thinking of, there's like five or six Expedition Seven vehicles. There you go. Got an awesome photo wow. of it there in the museum. Yeah, they have like the huge tires, right? <laughs> yeah. Looks like almost they're, 40, they're 44 inch tires. It's got like onboard CTIS, so you can air up and down as you drive. Even that's uh, awesome. So very neat vehicle. So that that vehicle went back to Iceland after the Antarctica trip. Went back to Arctic trucks. Okay. Well, three years ago now, Greg had another wild hair to do an amazing adventure and one that had never been driven before. And that was Greenland. It's never been driven from the south to the north, like a long axis crossing of Greenland from Earth really? to Earth. So we wow. we planned and, and uh, prepared, and we ended up taking three Arctic trucks, two four-by-fours, and one six-by-six. They're all Toyota Hiluxes. Nice. And we did Man. a successful crossing starting in the south of Greenland and drove all the way north, all the way up to land again on the north side, and then back down to Nuke where we shipped the vehicles home. So that was Wow. Kind of the most recent massive adventure I've been on, and that was a pretty, uh, a pretty amazing adventure. When you think of all the logistics of driving vehicles across the polar ice ice fields like that, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> now, how, why, how many days did it take y'all to go on that trip from uh, the south of of so, Greenland to the north of Greenland? Yeah, twenty one days. So I, I was there for a little longer. I actually went ahead of time and unpacked the vehicles out of the containers, and I spent time on the the tail end recontainerizing the the vehicles. And that mm-hmm. one came back to Utah, as you saw, as Jeff yeah. saw it in the museum. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but 21 days on the ice. So from wow. the time we left, uh, we left a, at the reindeer station, we call it, down on the southern coast. It's a guy that has a reindeer. He's a reindeer rancher. <laughs> reindeer. Scouted <laughs> <laughs> out a way to get up the glaciers on the south side to get up onto the ice cap. Like what he felt was a reasonably safe way to do it. And mm-hmm. uh, it was still all untested until we drove it. So it was... Not, I mean, it's amazing that everything worked out. We, we definitely suffered a lot of failures and had a lot of issues along the way. Uh, so I said 21 days. Here's a, the, the giving examples. We ended up sleeping like just four or five nights. 
the rest of the time we would, we were just running so far behind yeah. because things kept breaking and like the cold weather is just so hard on material. Sure. Weather was bad and setting up a tent at 10,000 feet and those you know temperatures is so hard that we ended up, we just drive for a couple days straight and everybody just tur- turns napping in the car and or honestly behind the wheel of the vehicle because there's kind of nothing you can run into for about a week in any direction so wow, your that's co-driver wild. would just kind of maybe grab the steering wheel and set your course back correct if you goes for just a minute the only thing you could do is run into the other vehicles but we're all yeah. kind of cruise control roughly going the same speed so oh, it, was, oh man. it was brutal it was at, it was wow I would call it type two fun. Like in the moment, there were plenty of smiles. We all got along really well, but it wasn't like you were ever having a great time because you're just cold. Your feet were always cold. Your fingers were always cold. I smelled like jet fuel the whole time because I spent most of my time fueling the vehicles. So just like that comes all over you with a pump. And and, uh, anyways, but then I smile about it now and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. What an adventure. Holy <laughs> That's crap. crazy. I couldn't imagine just setting cruise control and not seeing anything for hundreds of miles around you. That's that's bonkers to think about. <laughs> they call it like it's like an ice desert. It'd be about like being in the salt flats, Bonneville salt flats, but instead of just flat for you know 20, 30 miles in each direction, mm-hmm. it's flat for five hundred plus, you know, up to a oh. thousand depending on the direction going thousands sure. of miles. So That's there's insane. really once you're up on top of that, it's just a it's just a big dome, very little rays. I mean, there's some terrain that you have to deal with, and it's like ice ridges and things that can start shaking up the vehicles. Sure. But overall, it's just kind of like wow. lock in and drive. Yeah. Now, how much psi are you running in those tires? Like five, four, five? Yeah, or lower. Just depended lower. on depend on the, the snow condition. So hmm. on that vehicle, there's actually hoses that connect from the fender down to yeah. each wheel. And it's a on it's a CTIS system that you can run while you drive. So you can air up and down as you move the vehicle. It's a cool system. It wouldn't work obviously in the trees in the the you know the northwest or anywhere that's got tighter sure. trails. You just rip them yeah. off in the rocks. But in that uh, in that in climate in that environment, they're perfect. So they run an AR like an ARB twin compressor under the hood, and it's got a little uh, iPad. Uh, a little iPhone, little app system that lets you air up and down. So when we started out in the morning, a lot of times, or in soft snow, you would air down to even like two and three PSI until you got kind of up on plane, like the vehicle starts to get back up on top. And then as you get moving faster, you would then add air because the the tire really starts doing funky things and the sidewall really starts deforming and you can uh, build up heat and and ultimately damage the tire if mm-hmm. you run too low too long not to mention just like the mechanical inefficiency you know we've all driven air down you can really feel that extra drag yeah. as oh, you yeah. turn and as you move so it was very fluid though what we those tires were coming kind of coming up and down pretty regularly and even like in the morning, you would start, you'd lower them a little bit to kind of get moving and get everything warmed mm-hmm. up and spinning and then kind of air them up as you go. Wow. Man, so that's awesome. you had mentioned you're, you're in charge of refilling it jet fuel. Was that just because of cold temps and, or is that just why, why that? Yeah. Cold temps is, a, is certainly a big part of it. I don't claim to know a ton about fuels. I learned okay. way more than I ever thought I needed to for that trip, just getting to know it. But <laughs> obviously jet fuel is known to have really clean properties. So it's just pure, yeah. uh, less, less, you know, debris can be in it, like parts per million debris, but also like the anti-gelling capabilities uh, at those low temps. But I, I yeah. really think a, a third and compelling reason too, for that place, particularly Greenland is availability getting that much diesel shipped around to those places would be 
uh, in fact, harder, though less expensive, perhaps, but mm -hmm. harder than getting jet fuel because there are everything on Greenland serviced by air, all the remote villages. And yeah, we sense. had yeah. fuel flown in and dropped for us along the way. And there were occasions where that, that it was like a little twin otter would land. They yeah. would unload a bunch. They take all the seats out. It's a little small passenger twin prop. Yeah. They would roll uh -huh. drums in there and strap them down. They would then unload all of those. And we would, we would fill our, we had two bladders on sleds that we towed behind a vehicle. <laughs> and then we had ah, a little drums. We, we would refill those. And then yeah. the rest of it, we would pump right into the plane. So they had enough fuel to get back. Get back. Yeah. Had we been using like diesel, that wouldn't have been an option to have like that fuel shared between the plane and the, uh, and the vehicle. So, uh, that's another reason. And Arctic Trucks does do some special preparations to the motors to be able to run those. Mm -hmm. uh, they basically add a, they have like a system that adds some additional lubrication just to keep things really lubricated, those cold sure. temps. But we never shut the motors off. For those three weeks from the time we sent out of a little town called Isotorque all the way back up north and came back, they the motors on any engine on any one vehicle was never off for more than 10 or 15 minutes while we did like checked oil and and did sure. any checks on the motor maybe maybe 20 or 30 minutes but certainly never got cold they ran 24 yeah. 7 and they also had a diesel preheater system on them like an s-bar wabasto system that actually yeah. adds a little bit of additional heat to the motor i've heard about that that's awesome yeah oh yeah i was gonna say because at those temps i mean your radiator and, and lines and everything would just be completely done right cool yeah so we saw like measured temp like with windshield factored in like somewhere in the minus 80 to minus 90 range fahrenheit no <laughs> so certainly cold but you know even just air temps <laughs> could be you know minus 30 range minus 20 minus 30 so yeah when those vehicles are parked even with the engine running idling they would just get like you know like no heat left in the motor like the heater would be uh. blowing cold air so that diesel preheater system was very fundamental to be able to add that additional heat to keep things warm. And whereas we're sleeping in the cab of the truck most of the time, all those nights we didn't set up a camp. We mm -hmm. would like try and you know stop the vehicles when when nobody when we didn't have three people that could keep their eyes open. That was time to pull the vehicles over, <laughs> circle the wagons, yeah. and uh, just sleep inside the vehicles. That's that's exactly how yeah. it went down. And that happened for about three four hours every forty eight hours. We would do that. Oh wow wow so that what do you crazy like what what goes through your head when you're sitting there like i'm just sitting here i'm on my couch you know and i'm like <laughs> you know what i want to go drive across an ice desert like what like what goes through <laughs> like, how does how does one get to that process and I, yeah. I get it you got your buddies and, and we have this idea and stuff but like as you're preparing for that like what are you thinking about what's going through your head as you're going okay i'm about to go spend three weeks in an ice desert that if if shit goes sideways for 48 hours like that's it you make like, sure you your garmin subscription is uh, up to date yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we got your, your inreach with you yeah. <laughs> we did we we relied on the inreaches a lot yeah. that was our one of our main modes of transport uh, or of communication we yeah. did have sat phones and of course uh two-way radios between the vehicles gmrs sure. radios um but, but the biggest thing was gear this isn't like a trip. A lot of the other places I've been, where mm -hmm. if you forget your flip flops, you run to the hardware store, run to you know, run to the, the camping store in Moab and grab a new yeah. pair of flip flops. You're gonna yeah. pay a few extra bucks. This is yeah. like if you don't have what you need and you didn't ship it ahead of time with the vehicles or yeah. with the gear we shipped up there, uh, then you probably don't have it. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of preparation into the right gear. Greg, he took on the role of the expedition leader for this trip, and he spent an inordinate amount of time planning the mills, the food, because all of that 
had to ship from Utah here. We loaded it into containers or into big wooden crates uh, probably two months ahead of time wow. and had all that stuff. And then even a lot of my personal gear, I loaded up into Alu boxes. We, mm-hmm. that was our, that was our closet. Each of us got, we, we had two Alu boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're familiar with the, you know, the aluminum cases, yeah. then mm-hmm. one of them was your sleeping gear that you could keep your sleeping bag, uh, tent and anything you needed to overnight. And the other one was like everything else you needed, clothes, boots, etc. So mm-hmm. all of that was packed ahead of time. Uh, so a lot of preparations in that. Some of that food preparation was driven by the Greenland government. They, they required that we carried basically a certain amount of calorie calories per person per day. We were going to be there, but as well as like pretty healthy emergency spares. Like I bet we had, I bet in the end we had an additional month's worth of food that we took with us. It would have been getting pretty sparse towards the end on meal selection, but we had a lot because there, there, there was a threshold where as we made our way North, we crossed an invisible line, but that invisible mm-hmm. line was where we were out of reach of any one helicopter that is in Greenland. So the only oh, way wow. that they would be able to Whoa. stage a rescue north of that point would be actually to like do a two-part rescue where they had a helicopter that flew fuel up, returned, yeah. came back empty, refueled, came back and got you. You make sense. Like they would have had to leapfrog fuel to come get us, uh, which meant up to you know, 48, 72 hours, if there were yeah. any kind of an emergency situation or longer, if weather, uh, poor weather conditions prevailed. Um, so part of that is we did have a full doctor go with us. Uh, Dr. John Solberg, nice. he's an amazing gentleman. Oh. And, uh, he, that, that was his full-time role in addition to helping out with everything, everybody dove in wherever they could, but John kept an eye on everybody and kind of uh, was the safety patrol, you know, mm-hmm. said, Hey guys, that doesn't make sense to be doing that. Someone's going to get hurt or, <laughs> Hey, let's rethink, yeah. <laughs> let's rethink this idea. Now, I need one of those in my life. Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I need one on every trip I do. <laughs> but, uh, he, he did an amazing job. And fortunately the worst we had was a little bit of, a little bit of frostbite, and a, you know, a lot of cold toes and sure. poor nutrition, but we, we dealt with that. We ate a lot of yeah. Snickers and Twinkies, you know, when you're, <laughs> When you're cold and tired, you just yeah. eat whatever you eat. You just you don't feel like making yeah. a meal all the yeah. time when you're that cold. And at ten thousand feet, you start getting little elevation sickness. You just don't always feel awesome, and it you know it's yeah. hard to stay hydrated even though you're cold. You still need that hydration. It's hard mm-hmm. to onboard as much water as you should at that elevation. So I don't think any of us were like kind of in our top shape prime of health. But sure. <laughs> I mean, at that point at that temperature, calories are calories. It doesn't matter if it's coming it's from it. a Snickers bar or uh, <laughs> some it. sort of prepackaged meal, man. Yeah. So going, I know that, 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 that trip was a little bit more recent, but your other trips with uh, the ex, uh, the expedition seven, how did that prepare you for all the stuff that you did with um, expedition overland? Cause you've been well, a big component to their, them and their trips. Yeah. I've been really fortunate to travel with uh, the ex overland crew and the, the Croft family it actually, it's a hundred percent how it went down because yeah. I, I was doing the expedition seven trips and I had just yeah. finished and, and Clay came on several of those trips. He came to Russia and was the that. videographer cool. for those trips. He did. He came oh. as the hired uh, camera guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how I met Clay. I had met him at SEMA and just kind of through the industry at Overland Expo events sure. a little bit before that. 
but got to spend a ton of time with them is, you know, you know how road trips are. You get yeah. <laughs> 18 hours of the waking day with the same person in a car yeah. and get to know everything <laughs> yeah. about them. Yeah. How they yeah. their wife exactly. and what their, favorite, what their favorite candy bar is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so Clay was going on. And, and while we were doing Expedition 7, they were doing their first Alaska Yukon season. They're subsequently, they're actually there right season. this minute yeah. back in Alaska. Oh man. Yeah. So, but they, they were doing that while we were doing expedition seven. Mm-hmm. We, I had just finished driving from, uh, basically we went from Buenos Aires down to Ushuaia, the Southern tip of South America. Yeah. And then we drove all the way back here to Utah, drove the vehicles back. Clay and crew were planning to do almost the opposite, basically Central America to drive mm-hmm. down to Panama and then stop the trip there and do their, you know, kind of continue on their Pan American series. Uh, but, but finishing out their Central America. So he had called me yeah. and we were texting and he's calling like, Hey, what did you guys do for this? And what, like, what did you find this country? Yeah. Like what was cool here? What was cool here? And um, finally he just said, Hey man, can you go? Like, would you be interested in joining us and heading down there with us? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. There's never, never a perfect time in life. You know, I always have things going on with family and business and right. other trips, but I've always been a, under the mantra that like, if those opportunities present themselves, you kind of like make a way to make it happen. You just do it. Definitely. And uh, fortunately, my wife is really supportive. So she, she helped out and was on board with it. And I, I was then able to go do the Central America trip with the EXO yeah. crew and wasn't sure if it would turn blossom into more from there. But since yeah. we've done Australia and uh, the McKenzie series up in yep. Canada uh, a lot of North stuff here in North America and then did an Australia trip. So been fortunate to do a lot of really neat travel with the XO crew. And I spend the, I guess if I had a job, there was an actual job on the trip. It would be, which kind of, we all cover different things, but I, I handle mm-hmm. a lot of like the day-to-day logistics and just the routes and, and planning ahead of time, what we're going to do in the time that we have allotted to do it. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, everything that I've read and, and heard and seen from you is like, you're kind of, the 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 cool-headed guy right when a situation goes south no no pun intended but when a situation goes south (laughs) you kind of are like okay this is what we need to do this is i've done this before or i've been in a situation like this i imagine all these trips and all these years even you just running you know desert races kind of has has taught you a lot right so i guess my next question would be from either your expedition seven or yourself with xo What's kind of been a key takeaway uh, of something that you see a lot of people not doing when they're planning or going on long, long? You're stealing my thunder, Steve. I was going to ask. (laughs) Sorry, I'll shut up after this. (laughs) That that was Jeff's question too. That's a a great question. I think um, I'm always adapting and we're still learning along the way. Part of uh, with XO more so than Expedition 7, XO is kind of memorialized on YouTube, right? Like I can always go back and watch and be like, sure. oh man, yeah. that's so dumb of us to do. <laughs> Why did we do that? Clay yeah. is very, uh, Clay and the production team, I will say, are very uh, authentic about what they show us. When we do something stupid, they could hide that and like not put that in the show, but that's sure. real. And so we, we do plenty of dumb things and we have, <laughs> yes, we forgot the chain sharpener in Canada, you know, and yeah, we brought the wrong, we brought two chainsaws and the, the spare chains we brought didn't even fit the chainsaws we had. So we make all those same mistakes too. Yeah. I think that uh, maybe the other direction, I'll kind of uh, throw a twist in there is that sometimes people spend too much time planning. They try and have it so perfect that they get yeah. paralyzed into like what they're actually going to do and just enjoying and, and being free flowing. And mm-hmm. as XO has morphed on, or at least the, the more recent trips I've been on, we've, we've tried to throttle out of having too many objectives along the way. Like today yeah. we're here, but then we got to leave by noon because we got to be yeah. here. 
and that still happens naturally because you've got set timelines and you've got you know maybe flights coming and going or uh, in our personal lives we have you know you got to get back to work on Monday but uh, <laughs> allow time for spontaneity allow some time to wander down a road that you had no clue even existed when you were doing your planning and uh, that, you know sometimes those are going to be the the most epic part of your adventure is yeah. the thing that you had never even heard of so uh, that's certainly the case with people that come to Utah mm-hmm. I. Oh yeah. Maybe sometimes giggle a little bit when they, you know, they check all the boxes, got to try white rim trail, got to check out, you know, and those are all amazing places. Look, that's why they're so popular and everyone hears about them. But what you don't know is if you kind of just wandered that other direction, you have maybe equally as neat opportunities, but less people and a more authentic, mm-hmm. uh, less uh, catered uh, experience because there's just not so yeah. many people there. Wow. That was uh Gemini bridges for me in Moab. We That's, ended up just I like was camping say, Gemini bridges at like, the, yeah. And, uh, at the, like the mouth of it. And I was like, you know what? We were heading up, we were starting to head home and I was like, let's just go this way on this road and see what happens. And like, boom, Gemini bridges. And, and yeah, it was, it was awesome. a fun little trip. Yeah. yeah and that's such a cool area too. And, and way less people in the Gemini bridges, yeah. you know, all the way up to binky well area. than there are like zero people fins and things. Yeah. But, but everyone tells you, Oh, if you go to Moab, you got to do hells or bench. And I don't disagree, yeah. but I would almost I did. say I'd, I took Gemini Bridges with nobody yeah. before I took Hell's Revenge with oh, yeah. 900 other people that day. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, man, that's wild. So yeah, I was, I was, as Steve was saying, I was reading, reading up on you and saw that y'all had met, you had met Clay through that. And that's, I had actually gotten to know you through that Expedition Overland series. That's where I, I first learned about you and then got into the Land Cruiser community and then obviously saw your, 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 service in in that world right i'll, I'll yeah. say that because you definitely you definitely give back to that community quite a bit um so yeah the the exo stuff and, and kind of what you do there one thing i'm curious about is you mentioned a couple times through the podcast of you know your job here or their job there as you're doing these expeditions it, it seems like there's definitely a a structure of kind of how everybody is placed in there and what their role is. What are, what are some core roles that you see in these big expeditions that, that, you know, that you got to have, um, you know, and, and I know now it's probably cameramen's included in that too, but when you're looking at the basics, what's the, what is that? Yeah. Great question. And they, they vary based on those trips, but anytime, any of those bigger ones where we've had like a really fine night, goal in mind, be it like drive the Pan American highway all the way down to South America or crossing Greenland, you've got a pretty defined goal. And with a defined goal, you really need to define roles. And so some of those roles with, uh, I'll take expedition overland, for example, obviously you've got the camera crew and the production crew, and -hmm. they're not always even shown a whole lot in front of the camera. Sometimes you would, you'll catch glimpses and know they're there, but they're, they kind of run autonomously. Yeah. Uh, but logistics is a big one, spending time doing the mapping and navigation, kind of knowing where we're going from day to day and spending time, like how much time can we afford to spend at any one time before we need to move on? And that's not necessarily like with South America, because we had too many hard deadlines, but just more, we had X amount of time, you know, so many weeks, eight weeks to get from the top to the bottom. You can't spend all your time, you know, in the North, you'd never get out of Columbia. I mean, there's, there's amazing places you absolutely could spend all that time. So, yeah. um, logistics time management we also always with both both e7 and xo and i guess even to a degree with like our racing endeavors with kangaroo racing we always designate like a safety person a safety you know call them a safety officer safety person just somebody that sits back and just kind of watches maybe they think about hey are we setting up camp in a safe spot is it 
you know, it could be weather related, safe, the flash mm-hmm. floods, or that's happening in Utah today. In fact, wildfires, things of that nature, or just like, is this a safe spot to be if locals came and, you know, that could be anywhere and, and wanted to, are we really easily visible from the highway? So just kind of sitting back and thinking things like that, but also just safety point. and driving. Hey, does somebody need a reminder, put your phone away while you're driving or, Hey, probably time for you to take a nap and hop in the passenger seats. Just, just little roles like that. Uh, and it, I think it's also equally important that you've got somebody taking the role as expedition leader. And that may be, that may be really far fetched for like a group of guys or like on the trips I love to go do, or we'll head and do a Southern Utah trip. You know, I mean that we'll get too formal, but on those trips, the bigger ones, it is important because ultimately somebody has got to make some tough decisions once in a while, make some tough calls. And there's mm-hmm. often not room for democracy in those. If you're going to sit around and talk about, Hey, when do we turn back? Well, you're never going to get necessarily a consensus. And mm-hmm. therefore somebody's just got to take that role and say, Hey, I'm the guy that planned this trip this is the day we turn back or, Hey, we're going to forego going hmm. to this area because we want to spend more time here. So is that, that answer your question? I, I, I know it's kind of pretty generic, but those are some of the biggest roles we would have. In addition to things like food, somebody's usually in charge of cooking and the food. And that doesn't mean they cook every meal. That just means they kind of come up with a menu and then they're then designate people to do the cooking. That answers it for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure. So totally like, like you said, you know, with the, the smaller expeditions, even if a day trip or a weekend trip, mm-hmm. I, I've seen that, you know, someone stepping up and being the leader on, on those types of things of, you know, if they're the lead spotter and they listen to you and like, you know, one person, you know, is, needs to be the spotter. You can't be four people spotting saying, go, go left and this one going right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've been in circumstances where we had to call, you know, a trail and say, Hey, we're not going to go this way. We're going to turn around because we're with three vehicles on 37s that are locked and there's a Tacoma on 33s and a spacer lift. So he's got to go around, but we're all going to turn around and go back because when shit hits the fan and you guys break that Tacoma, you're all in it, right? You're all in it. You've got to get that vehicle back. So um, totally, totally a good idea. And then the next question was, is, is how do you, I know working with like an expedition overland, you know, you kind of have the respect for each other because you work with each other a lot, but how do you, is there something that you do to get that kind of respect from everybody? Like if you kind of say, Hey, I'm going to be the one that's going to say what's, or when you're, when you're telling people we're going too far, how do you kind of, you know, establish that? I think a lot of those roles kind of happen somewhat naturally too, just when people can make those calls in the right places. Um, I'll say that is a, a total compliment to to both Clay from Expedition Overland and, and Greg and Scott with Expedition Seven is uh, they they really vetted out team members and and put people in the roles that they were strong suited to and yeah. weren't afraid to tell people hey that's not your role so don't worry about that like I'm the first to say I know nothing about cameras and production so I don't even like <laughs> if those guys tell me something looks amazing and beautiful I'm like awesome sounds cool like yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I just know that I don't know and and you know, I probably need to do that more often in life and just let people, you know, like understand that there are people that are, uh, can take those roles. And I, I always try and admire that and, and honor that when I see people that uh, make those decisions, I think we all just seem to click and fall into place. Like, Hey, that's his strong suit. Let's let, you know, let's defer to him for his opinion on that. And, uh, and vice versa when it's something that maybe I perhaps have a better input on or some experience with. Gotcha. Nice. 
Um, so with the with the planning of expeditions and things over all the different types of continents and terrains, like what would you say are the maybe top three or top four things that you should put in a vehicle that people don't necessarily think about that you know from experience? That's a good one. Uh, so there's all the basics, and we can easily kind of apply the hey, this is what every uh, overland Tacoma looks like, right? The things that everybody includes, but yeah. uh, one that we kind of just jokingly talked about in the beginning, and, and I and you, one of you, you guys were installing the GRMS radio too, and putting in a good radio system. Is people often overlook that they they have every other flashbang gizmo on their vehicle, every Gucci yeah. accessory that's you know looks the part, but then they have like a Bofang handheld radio, and nothing's more frustrating. And those work. I, I've got a handful too. They're sure. great for handing out to a spotter, a trail if they get run over. You don't care, but investing in a good mobile mounted radio for your vehicle, regardless of what brand that is, I think is a huge thing. It's, uh, there's no greater enjoyment when I, when I lead trails, I do a lot of, you know, with local clubs or some of the training we do, uh, there's no greater enjoyment than being able to talk to everybody in your group and not like having one or two people (laughs) that have no clue why we stopped and have no clue what time we're going to have lunch at. And, and usually it always comes down to like poor communication. And if they don't have a radio or they have perhaps an old CB, not, not to bash anyone that still loves CBs, but (laughs) Hey, those days are gone. we got better options these days. Um, you know, you guys, you got, you totally know this. You guys all understand that. So I think good communications are a big one. Uh, the other one I see is a, a total falter is, is spare parts. Like people plan so much on the initial build of their vehicle and putting all these yeah. high-end awesome suspensions and, and high-end custom link parts, particularly on anything that's got like coil suspension and four link. And, but don't carry like a spare control arm or a spare rod end or a spare tie rod. And you hear plenty of stories of a Tacoma that lost a ball joint that stuck out on the trail. And we have a, I'm a member at one of the, uh, board of directors of our local uh, off-road recovery team. We do a lot of uh, nonprofit recoveries out on yeah. Utah's got a lot of public land. So we spend yep. sometimes a couple of week doing recoveries. And often I'd say probably 50% of those, maybe it'd have to kind of go back and think or are not. In fact, they're stuck or rolled or broken. They're, well, they're, they're just broken. They didn't have a spare part they needed to get mm-hmm. them out of an area. Same. So yeah. um, you're never going to plan for every spare, but yeah. if there's something I learned from, like the XO or the E7 trips and particularly the Greenland trip is that we took every spare we thought we could need. And the yeah. Arctic trucks team, uh, they're amazing at knowing what they need because they've got so much time in those vehicles. So mm-hmm. you're not always going to nail it the first try, but you know, watch, watch the Facebook groups, watch forums, watch what happens at trail rides and what people break and start thinking, you know what, I probably ought to carry one of those. And when you do your yeah. ball joints next time, maybe carry one of those as a spare or 80 series guys carry a spare berth. Like, you know, I mean, be, be prepared for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Chances are, if you have the parts, you don't need them, but you're going to be able to hand them to somebody else out on the trail that does. So that would be probably another one. And a third one. And what's I'm a big guy on fuel capacity. I love long range tanks and auxiliary fuel. Yeah. And that's been really important in a lot of the trips we've done uh, internationally, but also here in North America. There's a lot of places in Utah that a uh, standard Thirsty 80 series is going to be struggling to go from <laughs> point A to point B or a 100 series and certainly yeah. a 40 or a 60. They're all going to struggle to get there on a single tank, particularly like in our West Desert and into Nevada. So now you're strapping fuel to the roof or you've got your, you know, you got your roto packs, which are cool and they work really well. But uh, I see a lot of people invest a lot of money in LED lights and other things that I certainly yeah. find less useful personally than sure. like a fuel tank that's mounted underneath the vehicle. So that'd be another one. I, I, and I think we have a lot of customers that use them, but I, 
have a lot of people to say like, man, that's a lot of money for yeah. 20 extra gallons of fuel. I could carry that on my roof. But if you've ever spent a lot of time off-roading with 20 gallons on your roof and playing that game every night at dumping mm-hmm. cans, it gets old pretty quick. Yeah. So, doing it, doing it often. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting segue into, um, so you mentioned auxiliary fuel, uh, all three mm-hmm. of us, all four of us know that fuel is very heavy, right? So how do you balance that, that payload capacity with the extra fuel? Cause actually I've not to plug myself, but uh, I've created the kind of a payload. <laughs> you can plug that, yourself on your Okay. Podcast. Well, I've created a, a payload <laughs> tracker <laughs> that, that will account for how much fuel you have, what kind of fuel, cause diesel weighs a little bit more, but you can plug in all these things and kind of get a, my overcapacity and my undercapacity, but because you're talking about this auxiliary fuel tank, how can you balance? Uh, do you just go over GVWM and just hope for the best, or do you kind of start thinking of increasing that GVWM, or, or you know, maybe taking some seats out that you don't necessarily use? Have, yeah, both. So, in the case of the Expedition Seven vehicles, uh, two the two main troopies had auxiliary fuel tanks on them from the factory. So they were built in with the proper GV. And in addition, we were adding quite robust suspension underneath those. And Land Cruisers are pretty resilient, more so to exceeding GVM. And there's plenty of, plenty of situations where they've done it for many, many years, travel Mm -hmm. around the world in hundred series that are well over their G their, their, their uh, weight ratings, same with 80 series. So I'm not to say you should do it. I'm not advocating you do, but they can, they're a little less prone to issue with it versus like a Tacoma or a forerunner that could start having frame failures and certainly the brake, you know, like inadequate braking. So um, in the case of the E seven vehicles, though, it was a, it was a mix of both. They did lose a lot of their interior accoutrements and to get the, the cargo systems, but they yeah. were built pretty modestly in weight, knowing that they were going to be doing a lot of driving and fuel efficiency came to mind. A lot of people are shocked to hear that. Like we didn't use any rooftop tents on those vehicles. We slept inside yeah. the vehicles on sleeping platforms or slept on the ground in tents or hammocks and mm-hmm. kind of a wide variety of mixing solutions. And that was done mostly because a, a troopie with a rooftop tent on the rack won't fit in a shipping container. And those vehicles were doing so Makes many sense, shipments. Yeah. And, and then also rooftop tents aren't always an awesome solution, particularly for like a quick, dirty camp where you just want to yeah. crawl behind your seat and go to sleep. They're not always a perfect solution. So um, yeah. that's another way to keep payload down because while I like rooftop tents in a lot of situations and they work really well, they also weigh significantly more than a quality ground tent does. Yeah. Your bedding's the same. So that's a net, you know, net, net neutral, but mm-hmm. the tent itself weighs significantly more. Plus it's way up high on the vehicle. So it, it affects the dynamics of the vehicle in yeah. a different way. Um, but like it, I'll use my personal vehicles. I've got a, like a 200 series. that has got the long range fuel tank on the back. Uh, I have a drawer system in the rear, but I've kind of, other than that, kept it pretty lightweight. I don't, I don't get super, I have more weight in tools and spares than I do in any other accessory, really. Interesting. And yeah. I'm still under, with, with the increased payload springs I have under there, it still mm-hmm. handles and, and operates really well and adequately, you know, in my opinion. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell me, tell me more about how you overland without an our rooftop tent. <laughs> Yeah, that's, <laughs> that better be a joke. No, LJ. If you, uh, <laughs> no, Some, somewhere in history, like somewhere in the last <laughs> five to 10 years, that became like a checkbox that you're not overland if you don't have a rooftop tent. Yeah. And I'd maybe oh, put like man. roto packs and max tracks and a lot of other awesome gear on that list. But, but the reality is like, we didn't have any fuel cans when we drove around the world, like no spare yeah. fuel can, no roto packs. We 
uh, we didn't have a single like ditch light on the side of the vehicles. And we didn't have a <laughs> no Baja designs or anything. <laughs> no, well, we did have we had some lighting, like some light bars on the racks. I'm not saying we were completely, uh, yeah. you know, ar- archaic Ice Age guys, but we had some lights. But we didn't have like a lot of the stuff that I think has almost become like the standard these days that you feel like you have. And and if I can ever emphasize one thing to anybody, anyone that's looking into getting into overlanding or maybe is already into it and isn't like like feeling like they're having a lot of fulfillment in their trips is don't overpack and don't make your vehicle. Don't make it all about your vehicle. If it's all about your vehicle, that's what overlanding is to you is like how your vehicle's built, where you're going to, you know, like if it's so wrapped up in that one thing, then I think you're missing the bigger picture of travel. And that's, that's domestic or international. That's a trip to Moab or a trip around the world. Like if you have, if, if it's all about the truck and you spend all your time, never getting more than like, 13 feet away from your Tacoma the whole trip, you know, like everything is centric around (laughs) that. To me, I, I, I don't get that. Like I would have our time. It's, it's obviously totally about Toyotas in my life. Like everything I do involves a Toyota in some (laughs) fashion or other. Like, believe me, I'm a total Toyota nerd, but when I do those trips, like it's less about the vehicle. The vehicle is just that platform that's getting you to all these amazing places Mm -hmm. and these amazing backcountry and a launching point for cool hikes or scenery or native American or ghost towns or mines. Um, don't don't make it all the vehicle and don't get so uh don't build all these roadblocks in front of you that man as soon as i have a rooftop tent then i'm gonna go do that trip because yeah. we drove around the world without a rooftop so tent yeah. you mm-hmm. know i slept in the i yep. slept in the driver's seat of the, the little the the four-door 79 series truck a lot and like laid the seat back got my sleeping yeah. bag out it was it wasn't the best <laughs> night's sleep i've ever had but you know what it worked it, worked. it was great yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the no light bar guy. Like my 80, the only thing I have bolted to it on the outside is an mm-hmm. awning. Cool. And that's it. I made my own roof racks that are just like crossbars. And I'm like, I don't need the fancy shiny things. I had a, a hundred series. And I took my kids camping when it was bone stock, 250,000 miles on street tires. I went to the deserts of San Diego and California all over. Didn't have a, didn't have rooftop tents, didn't have a fridge, didn't have max tracks didn't have you know high lifts or any of that you know when i first started and it was like i was out there and people are like mm-hmm. why don't you get tires and i'm like i'm gonna spend the money on fuel i'm gonna spend the money on getting out there because yeah. it's a thirsty vehicle and it costs a lot <laughs> i don't need i drove with bald street tires on it for almost a year and i went on all these trails and people were like how do you go up that and i was like just learning driving like i had yeah. a that's a bald spare. I'm good. <laughs> you know, like I, I, you know, had the things that I needed to go out there and have fun. And it was more nimble cause it didn't weigh a ton, you know, and you get all these things bolted on your cars and you get heavy and, um, it just gets overloaded you know, too much. And stuff. I, and I think you'll remember more about that trip and the experiences you had than the trip where you have like this fully built vehicle where you spend so many hours packing and unpacking the vehicle every day. Yeah no fault to people that love gear. We're all gadget. You know, that's, I think a lot of the reasons why we love our vehicles is because yeah. you can't accessorize them and add gadgets and camp little goodies and fridges and all your toys. But yeah. We've all been at camp with that guy that you get to camp at seven o'clock and by like nine 30, he's finally got everything deployed and staked into the ground. <laughs> you know, it's already dark. Yep. And, and then come uh, morning, you're up, we're all sitting in there, you know, sitting in your car with your, listening to the radio while you watch this dude, like <laughs> pack all this stuff back up for a single night. And, uh, yeah, yep. that, that where the, my experience is a lot of those, and I've spent a lot of time with customers in new vehicles and new builds, and they've yeah. kind of gone that way. Traditionally speaking, I would say this, maybe not for everybody, but 
less is more. And with more, you the more you travel, the less you think you have to have when you go each time. Yep. And yeah, again, that, it's almost like a litmus test. You can look at somebody's vehicle and say, I bet he hasn't had the opportunity to spend too much time in that yet. Because with time, you're going to start getting rid of all the things that you have to unbolt to get to the next thing. And you got so much stuff stored mm-hmm. in the back that you can't get to your can't you can't get your food gear without you know setting up X Y Z. So I think with time and experience, everyone starts to scale back and bring less things. Yep. Heck, I had a when I first really started getting into maybe longer distance travel, call it what you will, just here in Utah, bigger mm-hmm. trips like three and four and you know, week-long trips. I had a, an FJ40, and it was my wife and I, and I built an off-road trailer. This is back in the early 2000s, like 2002, 2003, and then like kind of 2005 range, I think I put a rooftop tent on it. And it was a really cool solution because we could kind of keep it loaded up. But man, I quickly found that like, we're just carrying stuff to be carrying it just because there's a yep. spot to put it. Like next thing you know, you're, you're like taking the barbecue everywhere. Like we're not even planning to barbecue <laughs> anymore. Like, yeah. <laughs> still going to cook out of a jet boil and out yep. of the, my pie iron over the campfire. But why do I have a barbecue yeah. and a stove yeah. and a big propane bottle? I had a generator mounted on the front bumper i'm like what do i need a generator for on, on that on the front tongue of the trailer my yeah. whole thought was oh if i ever had a well like i'll bring a grinder but like i have an inverter and a battery powered grinder why would i pack yeah. this stuff down so i have yeah. personally really tried to scale back and that that goes back to the gvw conversations and the payload is yeah. uh maybe if you're exceeding the payload of your vehicle horrendously particularly you either chose the wrong vehicle or you're yeah. bringing too much stuff so that's a good topic there's a on on Instagram, you follow a lot of these bigger guys and they went from having small Tacomas or little Jeeps and now they're up to bigger Jeeps and then F-250s and Dodge Rams and Ram, all, the, yeah. mm-hmm. all the big stuff. And it's so funny to see how everyone had the smaller stuff and now they're going bigger, especially in the deserts and stuff. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to have bigger, but it, it's funny just following that trend of everyone's switching to bigger now. Yeah. I, I think it is the word trend is probably part of it to be fair. Uh, Tacomas mm-hmm. are still amazingly fantastic trucks, but it's pretty hard to be unique in the Tacoma world and the Tacoma realm with a, uh, any kind of a built Tacoma, right? Like few things that haven't been done in this point and few people that haven't really uh, put their, their Tacoma on and the national forefront of Instagram and everybody even identifies that vehicle. You can, there's plenty of them you can see. Yeah. So I think some of it is there's some of those newer platforms are cool, but the payload is a big part of it. The ability to have like a, a four wheel camper, granted, you can kind of put a really lightweight one in a Tacoma, but you've pretty much maximized your payload yeah. by the time you put the camper in there. And if you have any food, fuel, water, and let alone any other gear and recovery gear, you've exceeded that. So I think that's a, a big part why people have gotten to big trucks. This mm-hmm. is my prediction. Personally, prediction is that we will see that change and ebb and flow as we always have. And it will come back around to people start realizing, Hey, I love the big truck. I love the payload, the power, the road manners, but it limits where I'm able to go off road. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they start wanting to get back into something smaller. And that maybe parallels when they start saying, Hey, turns out I don't need the the camp chef full, you know, breakout (laughs) kitchen anymore. Life changes, family changes, the kind of trips they want to do change. So Mm -hmm. I think you'll see in a couple of years more, whatever the next trucks will be, will get popular again. Kind of always ebbs and flows. See us Land Cruiser guys, though, we always sit on the back and just watch like we keep driving our old Land Cruisers. They're heavy. They always got (laughs) horrible fuel economy. They were always really big. So we we just love them when we beat them to death, pushing them down tight trails. Yeah. 
So I grew up in San Diego with, you know, open desert. So, you know, you have a lot of space to grow with. And I just recently moved to Tennessee um, a year ago and the trails out here are just so different. And, you know, you don't want a lot of stuff on the outside of your vehicle. You don't want a heavy vehicle with Mm -hmm. the mud and the wet, you know, all the time you want as light as possible. And like, you know, I worked with Steve on the little, the payload calculator and it's Mm -hmm. like, how much can you get out of your vehicle? What is the least yeah. amount of things that you need in there? My fridge is never coming out. So I like to keep my cold beer in there, right. but I'm everything else, yeah. everything else, like the, the sandwich pouches for the kids, that's always there, but everything else, like I don't need it. I don't need a tent on the top. I've had a tent for I think two or three years now. And I only use it a couple of times and it's sitting in my basement. I, I just don't use it. So it's such a different, you know, realm, you know, when you come out here with the tighter trails and trees and limbs and sneaking through let's be fair you built a a trailer jeff like you just made one like because you got bored earlier this year so like yeah but i don't use it i just want to have things (laughs) he wants to bring his pit boss (laughs) yeah i mean you but but i gotta bring the blackstone I, I, I say that I say that joking, like you don't need the tent because you just pull the trailer that you made because uh, yeah. you're but you are you're resourceful in that way where you can like you don't need a lot. But if you want it, if you want it, you're going to probably make it before you're going to go buy it, which is yeah. one of the cooler things about you. Yeah. And the whole the whole point, which Kurt was saying was the whole point of the trailer was it's base Kurt. It's a it's a five by seven plywood trailer on a, a metal frame cool. windows and stuff. Super basic. Um, you're not going to go down Baja with it. It would probably turn into splinters, but to roll into a campground with my kids, it's awesome. Put the diesel heater in there. We're camping in snow, no problem. But the whole concept was, I don't want to get somewhere and have to spend 45 minutes setting things up. So Mm -hmm. the bed lays out, you know, you put the, I put my big blackstone in there. I got to cook, you know, for the family. That's, that's my, my extra and then throw the bikes in there. But other than that, I don't, you know, it's, the beds are set up, ready to go. I want to spend time where I'm at instead of having to set up tents and things like that. Yeah. Cause it's not fun. Yeah. And, and I got to back up too and just say like, I, even though I, I talk about don't like overdo it with gear and don't make it so gear centric, but if those are like the legitimate things that two parts, one, get you through the work week, like Monday through Friday, you're excited to go use your vehicle. Cause you got like some new piece of gear you're going to try out and go use that weekend. That's awesome. And that's a great that's a great mm-hmm. use of it. And the other thing is if it truly makes your trip more enjoyable, more you know, like economic or more feasible or makes it so the family wants to go, there's no there's no amount of gear that you sh- you shouldn't have if that yeah. if that truly works. I just mean yep. don't let those be the hurdle. We've all seen somebody say, "Man, as soon as I get a, I can't wait till I have a rooftop tent because then I'm going to go yeah. do this yeah. trip or <laughs> yeah, I can't wait until I get my lift kit on cuz then I'll go do a Moab trip. You're like, you can drive most of Moab in a stock, any, you know, four by four vehicle. So just don't let those be roadblocks and hurdles to you actually getting out and using your vehicle or planning a cool trip. Uh, and, and if the money is better spent, like Jeff said, buying a bunch of fuel, you know, if if you're going to get all your stuff done, then you can't afford to drive the truck. Then what was the point of having it? What, What was the point of doing it? So be conscious of how you're doing that stuff. But if, if you need all that gear and all that gear does, uh, make your trip more enjoyable, that's awesome. Yeah. No, no shame there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm jealous that you have all the cool stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm jealous when I see people get stuff out. I'm like, Oh yeah, this guy has everything. <laughs> and if it, if it makes their trip more enjoyable, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Definitely. Well, this was a whole lot of fun. 
Oh my gosh. Yes. Thanks. It's already uh, been an hour. Uh, wow. It has. <laughs> it has. Uh, this has been an absolute blast, a pleasure. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't say this when we, when we talked to you the first time, Kurt, but we, you know, when we started doing this, your name was on the, on very high up on the list of people that oh, we wanted cool. to get to, uh, to be able to have on and, and talk to. So it's, um, it's, uh, you know, we haven't, it's, it's, it's not a, a made it, but we're, we're pretty happy to, to be doing it continually enough to, to be able to bring you on here to talk to us. Uh, your stories are incredible. Uh, you, you've got, you've lived a great life and I'm excited to keep on following you through as you keep on exploring and, and, and adventuring. Well, appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me and always happy to hop on and chat. So I love, love doing it. <laughs>